0: Thank you, friends. It's good to be with you. It's a joy to get to know another local church uh, here in Indianapolis, to see some of what God's doing in this part of the country. Uh, Thank you for your work, for the gospel. Uh, We pray for you uh, from time to time by name at our church in Washington, and uh, they'll be doing that, I'm sure, this morning while we're gathering here. One idea which was prominent in the New Testament and in the history of Christianity, but which is almost invisible today is the idea that's been the topic for the THINK conference this weekend. It's the idea of the church. Now, it it isn't that churches don't matter anymore uh, today among evangelicals. I know that there are churches like this one that that are bursting at the seams. I understand that there are programs that are full and that there are people who are uh, going to churches that can provide care from the the cradle to the grave uh, in their local churches. But, But in another sense, churches have nearly vanished. Uh, In any in any historic sense they have dissolved in the acids of individualism They've become no more than the expressions of the passing interests of those there the the programs are determined by internal polls Their services by what they perceive those outside their number want their budgets reflect nothing more than the desires of their members aggregated and organized So amidst all the apparent prosperity, what is truly missing is the corporate element of the church conceiving of itself as the church. So when we gather in our congregations on the Lord's Day, we're not just all having our personal devotionals, our quiet times, just with a bunch of other people in the room because we get somebody there to talk to us for a while or there's some other people we can sing with while we do it. No, we are participating in the life of our particular local church, and when we gather it's not merely as individual consumers kind of come to do our spiritual shopping for the week and then take it all back home for our own use, but we're actually assembling as a living institution, an organism, one body. Let me ask you a question which may help you get to the the nub of the matter what use is the church? What use is the church? Surely that's an easy question for some people to answer. I mean, for, for Mark or Joe or I, I mean, we work at the church, we can, we can give answers like that. But for most people sitting here this morning, how would you answer that? What is the use of the church? Now, if, if in your own mind you answer that in terms of what the church does for you, then I think you may be missing something. The biblical answer to what's the use of the church would have to do not so much with what it does for you as what the church does for God. And when we begin to understand this, we begin to turn the corner from a kind of, of self-centered involvement in the church to a kind of full-blown God-centered life together which God has called us together for his own purposes. And when you get this, the Christian life becomes a lot more than a simple sustained moral effort to cultivate a list of private virtues and avoid a list of private vices. You begin to understand the church as the manifestation of the living God in the world. Well, in order to explore this idea further, I want us to look at a letter in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, 1 Corinthians, and I want us to pretty much look at the whole book. So if you'd get your Bibles, open it up, we're going to be turning back and forth through all 16 chapters because I think what I'm going to talk to you about is the point, is the reason why Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians in the first place. The point of Paul's writing this letter is one which I think we need to hear very much today. It's to teach the Corinthians. What the church is supposed to be like and why it's supposed to be that way. What the church is supposed to be like and why it's supposed to be that way. So if you're taking notes, those would be my two basic points. What's the church like? Why is the church to be like that? So let's follow Paul as he teaches on this topic. First, what the church is to be like. And we see from this letter clearly that, number one, we are to be holy. We are to be holy. You look there in chapter 1, verse 2. Paul begins the letter by greeting the church there as those who are called to be holy. And then down in verse 8, Paul writes that Christ will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless. Now, I realize holiness is not a word we use a lot today. It's not a word that's as common on our lips as it may have been, say, on our grandparents' lips. What does holiness mean? Well, part of it means a strangeness, a strangeness to this world. Uh, part of this message uh, is that we realize that what we are talking about, what we have to say, our wisdom is different than this world's wisdom, this world's message. That's really what chapters 1 and 2 of First Corinthians are about. And then in chapter 3, we see more than simply being strange to the world. We're strange to the world because we Christians are special to God. So he writes there in chapter 3, verse 15, you are God's temple. Or down in chapter 3, verse 17, God's temple is sacred. And so the church must be pure. Chapter 5 is one of the classic statements on the purity of the church. The case of discipline there is all about holiness. It seems that this man had married his father's widow, his stepmother. And even in pagan Corinth's laws, that was scandalous and illegal. And Paul writes to the church about that in chapter 5, verse 13. He quotes, actually, from the Old Testament, a refrain in chapter 5, verse 13, that the Lord said to the people of Israel as they were preparing to go into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 17, and it's repeated again and again in Deuteronomy 19, 22, 24. Expel the wicked man from among you. God has always been concerned that his people be pure. Paul isn't saying the church consigns people to hell. Not at all. Indeed, the whole process of discipline is meant to be a warning to people. It's actually meant to help avert their condemnation by waking them up to their dire condition. So. We need to be honest as part of being in a church together about holiness and what we're called to be. Look in chapter 6. Paul says there in verses 9 and 10, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter if you think you will. Don't deceive yourself as if Paul knew we might deceive ourselves. Do you not know? These will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is clear that his kingdom will not be for the unholy. So, Paul says to these Christians in verse 11 there, you were washed, you were sanctified. And he argues with them that they should use their bodies in holiness. Paul wasn't peddling a kind of Platonism that said God wants you to have a subjective emotional experience in your spirit, but it really doesn't matter what you do with your body because that's just going to rot. No, chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter, is part of this letter because, in part, Paul is saying clearly God cares about what we do in the body. He will raise this body to exist eternally. So we cannot be indifferent to the morality of what we do with our bodies. Holiness includes what we do physically. He says in chapter 6 verse 13, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. He will raise the body. So holiness is essential. Look over in chapter 10. Paul reminds them of what happened to the people of God in the Old Testament when they displeased God and they set their hearts on evil things. There in verses 5 and 6, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Friends, holiness was to mark the people of God in the Old Testament, and holiness is to mark the church today. Not holiness in the sense that we should be a bunch of prudish, self-righteous people, but a community that in our conduct holds out hope of a better, a more humane, a more God-honoring way of living. And that's why membership in the local church is important, so that we can say, yes, I mean to be a part of this different kind of living. That's why teaching is important. That's why Mark and Joe and other pastors that you have need to teach you from God's Word about how we should live as Christians, how we should behave. And that's why discipline is important, because we should love each other enough if we have strayed in our own lives into sin and into a serious sin that we don't repent of. We need the friends around us to say, Tom, I know you say you're a Christian, you love Christ." But you seem to love your sin more than you love the Savior. If you have to keep one or the other, it looks like you're choosing to keep your sin. In love, we then act in discipline because we, in our church, we are to be holy. Of course, one of the main reasons that we're called, and to use Paul's language here, to to get rid of, from chapter 5, to get rid of those committed to their sins more than they're committed to Christ. Is because of a second thing that we are to be. We're to be united. So this is a second main characteristic of the church that we should note in 1 Corinthians. Not only is the church to be holy, but we're also to be united. To, to be united. And the church there apparently had a problem with this. Uh, in chapter one, from the passage that was read to us just a moment ago, you see there in verse ten, Paul says, "I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, and I always appreciate it as a pastor when somebody tells me where they get their info from, so thank you. You know, some from Chloe's household, I just want to be open about it, it's only as good as my source. You know, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. The separation they were supposed to know was a separation from the world and from sinfulness. Instead, what was going on, they were being separated from each other. So Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 3, you're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Apparently, they were even taking each other to secular courts. And Paul is emphatic in chapter 6 that lawsuits should not be going on among them. Such matters should be internally settled. Chapter 6, verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? There's a good question to go to bed with tonight. Why not rather be wronged. Paul invites you, come up with a list of reasons. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Friends, unity was supposed to be one of the hallmarks of the church. This unity was to transcend the old divisions of Jew and Gentile and every other earthly division. This is why Paul was so upset by the report of divisions in the church, even at the feast of their unity, the Lord's Supper. Look over in chapter 11. They were divided even at the symbol of their unity. Chapter 11, verse 18. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. It should not be this way. Friends, when churches divide for carnal reasons, we start being about other things. We are the church of the modern music, or or the church of this ethnic background, or of that pastor, or of this political party, or of homeschoolers, or of the blue carpet. I mean, I've seen churches divide over almost everything imaginable. But, friends, when we have a unity other than around the gospel of Jesus Christ, we show that we're not really united around Christ. Maybe it's these other things that we're united around. We need to think carefully, what is our unity around? Any other unity than around Christ and His gospel is different than true Christian unity. But the church is to be united. Well, Mark, if you've ever been in a church with other real humans, how on earth can that work? How can you really be united? You know, people, everybody other than me, is very difficult, you know. I mean, how can we ever be united together by the, by the scores, let alone by the hundreds? I mean, how can this work? Well, by a third characteristic Paul brings out here, we're to be united in love. It's a third characteristic that Paul describes the church by in this letter. We are to be loving. Turn with me to chapter 8, First Corinthians chapter 8. Notice how it begins. Paul writes, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This becomes Paul's basis for this large section of the letter, really from chapters 8 to 14 on love and letting consideration for others be the governor of what we should do. We see Paul's principle of love stated very clearly in chapter 10, verse 24, nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. And That's a verse to put up in your kitchen. Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. And there's of course the famous chapter 13, which Paul introduces in chapter 12, verse 31 by writing that he will show them the most excellent way, the beautiful love chapter there. In verse, chapter 13, verse 13, love is supreme. And so Paul exhorts them, and in chapter 14, verse 1, to follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And this is why in chapter 14, verses 3 to 5, Paul prioritizes prophecy over tongues, because prophecy strengthens or edifies the church, whereas tongues just edifies themselves. Paul sets out his argument to this end in verses 6 to 12, arguing that the Corinthians should try to excel in gifts that build up the church. He exhorted them to be concerned with whether or not the other person was edified, not just themselves. Friend, is that how you came to church this morning? Were you coming to church thinking, oh, I really hope other people are built up today by this meeting. I wonder what I could do to build others up. What, What could I say that would encourage her? What could I say that would build him up in that ministry that that would help him with that thing he's been misunderstanding, that would maybe ease her burden a little bit? Do you look forward to this weekly gathering, the first day of the week, the time Jesus got up from the dead? That's why we all get together and celebrate the beginning of every week. Do you look forward to how you can contribute to someone else's celebration when you come here? That's the kind of love that's to mark a church. So throughout this whole section in chapter 14 on gifts of prophecy and tongues, we find Paul emphasizing, I think, very practically what love will look like in the church. I think in some ways chapter 14 is every bit as much the love chapter as chapter 13. In chapter 14, he says there in verses 3 to 5, judge the worth of something by whether it edifies others because the the goal is the church's edification. Verse 12, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Verse 17, again, Paul cares about edifying others. Look down at verse 19, the measure is edifying others. A great summary of it is verse 26 there toward the end. All must be done for the strengthening of the church. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Verse 31, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Paul was really sensitive to the health of the church, wasn't he? But then that's no wonder when you look at chapter 15, verse 9, and you remember who Paul was. Chapter 15, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He tried to kill the church. So once he was converted, yes, he was extremely careful for the health and well-being of the church. Surely we can understand why God would use such a man to teach us, as he says over in chapter 16, verse 14, do everything in love. It's a wonderful memory verse, isn't it? First Corinthians 16, 14, that's the whole verse. Do everything in love. One particularly interesting part of that love, when I uh, look at this ch- this book that I'm always struck by, is the concern for other churches, which the Corinthians had and which Paul called for. From the be- very beginning of the letter, he emphasizes this back in chapter 1, verse 2. He is reminded them of their together with all those everywhere, chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Paul had lived like that when he was among them. He wasn't just interested in… in In them alone, but he wanted to interest them in the work of others elsewhere. So in the last chapter, in chapter 16, he writes to them about the collection for God's people as he leads that Corinthian church to care for other churches. Friends, one great thing that could be said about College Park Church is that you love other churches. I love the way Pastor Mark just prayed in the prayer for another local church. That's exactly right. Uh, As one friend says, when when the guy's been praying for revival forever, ever. You know, he's pastor of the church. Every Sunday he prays for revival. And one day revival breaks out, but at the guy's church across town, you know. So then is the guy who's praying for it excited or disappointed? You know, well, if he's disappointed, it shows he was really just praying for his own church. Whereas if he's excited, it shows he really loves the Lord, and he was excited about people coming to Christ. Friends, the, the, our local churches are not in the point. Capital Hill Baptist Church can close down. College Park Church can close down. As long as the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, it doesn't matter which restaurant the people eat at. You know, we're delighted that Jesus Christ come to be known. And we want to be a kind of church that's like that, that's marked by love. Love internally, but also then love externally. Trying to encourage others in anything they would do for the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your church marked by that kind of love? The church is to be loving. Now that's really all, all my first point, there are kind of 3 subpoints, but that's one big point, what the church is to be like. But now here's the second big point. Why is the church to be like that? What's the reason for these characteristics? And simply put, the reason is that the character of the church is to reflect the character of God. The character of the church is to reflect the character of God. I would argue that this is the thesis statement of 1 Corinthians. This is what this letter is about. The character of the church is to reflect the character of God. We are to be holy and united and loving, basically, because God is like all these things. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. God is to be reflected in his church. We see this generally in chapters 1 and 2. So the gospel is the wisdom of God, very much not the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom of God. Our our message is the message that comes from God. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 12, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Chapter 2, verse 16, We have received the mind of Christ. We're over in chapter 3, verse 19. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So let's just think through these characteristics again. We are to be holy because God is holy. Now, it's interesting, really. It's not that we're to be holy simply because we have been or we could be, or we are holy because God has made us so in Jesus. We are strange in this world only because. This world in its rebellion against God has become strange to God, become estranged to God. So if we are to be His, if we are to belong to God, then we are to be like Him. We read in chapter 1 here, verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. We Christians are led by Him. We are led by His wisdom. So Christ has become our holiness, and He has made us holy. We see in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, because we belong to God, and He has treated us specially. He has lived among us. He has bought us. He indwells us with His Spirit. So we must maintain this holiness as part of our task of reflecting the character of God. So in chapter 5, when we're on this question of church discipline with this man who's in this terribly adulterous relationship, we read in chapter 5, verse 7, Paul urges them, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. We, church, are the remaining half of the festival. We are to be the loaf unleavened with sin, we are to be the completion of the festival. The lamb has been slain. We are to be the unleavened loaf, his holy people completing the feast. We separate ourselves from sin to honor Christ, to be what he calls us to be in showing his character to his creation. And That's what we're called to be in the church. And so on down in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So we both individually and in our churches are called to show God's holiness to this world. We are to be holy, not as some arbitrary virtue, but because God is holy. And also, we are to be united because God is one because God is one. Sometimes we may lose our loyalty, our, or rather our unity, out of uh, a wrong loyalty to differing servants. Maybe you like the preacher before Mark better, th- better than you like Mark, and maybe you say things like that sometimes, or maybe you like the preacher before that, I'm of Apollos. You know, there are different crowds, and maybe you like the YouTubes of Matt Chandler sermons, you know. Maybe you, maybe you have your other favorites, but, but sometimes we find ourselves in our churches becoming partisan in a wrong sense and overly critical of other servants. But Paul reminds these Corinthians that all of the various work that's been done in us by the various people is all the work of God. Chapter 3, verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Mark and I realized that in our respective churches, we're just getting the church ready for the next guy. It's it's not our church. We're not trying to build it around us. Uh, We want to be faithful under shepherds till the Lord calls us on. And then finally, at some point, he'll come and he'll take us as his very own in person. And what we're doing is tending his flock, not our own. So whatever all the people you see doing up here on Sunday morning, you know, whether it's uh, Uh, our friend's kindness in leading the music or in in those who lead in prayer or those who organize or, or those who are working with your kids right now. What all who are Christians would say is don't so much see our kindness to you in all of this. See something of the loving kindness of God himself. As God is saying to you this morning, I love you. I am caring for you in all of this that you see. These people are working as part of my plan. I have called them. I have equipped them. I have filled them with my spirit. So all of this done for your benefit by a few of us and then these here and these there and the teachers, all of us are bit players in this. The one who orchestrates all this is God. Out of his love for his flock, he is to be celebrated. It's around Him that we are united. Friends, we can be united in our local church because there is only one foundation, Jesus Christ. There will be only one judge. No idol will finally judge us, no false teacher, not even our own conscience. Chapter 4, verse 4 is very interesting. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Friends, we are united together as we are united with God. Chapter 6, verse 17, he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And friends, there is only one true God. So because there is one loaf, chapter 10, verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. This is the nature of our unity. We are one body because we partake of one loaf. We are companions. Uh, we partake together of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 12, verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, <clears throat> but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, down in verse eleven. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one, just as He determines. Friends, it's clear that the same Spirit is in all Christians. The basic fact seems to be that God has made us one. So, here in chapter 12, verse 12, you see that Paul writes, The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with, and you'd think he'd say church, but if you look there, he doesn't. He says, so it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Friends, we are the body of Christ. We have his spirit. Chapter 12, verse 20, there are many parts but one body. I'm always struck back in chapter 1 as a pastor. When Paul hears about divisions in the church, how he responds, when I hear about divisions in the church, I'm more a political animal. I just want to know, okay, is, is Tom upset again? What's going on? You know, is this, is this those, is, is it this particular problem? What, what is it? You know, let's fix the problem. Paul is nothing like that. He's very theological. I mean, you look there in chapter one, he hears about these divisions, this ill report of the factions in the church, and look at the question he poses. About their division in verse 13. I would never have thought of this question, but of course it's the right question. Chapter 1, verse 13. Is Christ divided? What a fascinating question. So, when you think about College Park Church, as a church, I guess College Park has no other basis for existing. When Paul looks at the divisions in the church, and then he turns and he asks, Is Christ divided the powerful? theological assumption behind that is the church is the body of Christ. And that, of course, Paul had got on the Damascus road. When he was converted and going to persecute Christians, Christ asked him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not the church in Damascus, not Christians, but me. He so identified himself with the church So, our divisions take on an added seriousness because, as with any unholiness or blame, they reflect on the one whom we are to image. So, our disunity in our local church really becomes a lie about God and a lie about what God is like. As Paul said in chapter 12, verse 27, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So we are united in our churches and congregations because God is one. And finally, we're to be loving because God is loving. Look back uh, in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul quotes Isaiah. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him even at the center of our heart is to be a love for God, and our love for God is just a response to His tremendous love for us. God has taken the initiative. He's loved us to the point of redeeming us. He's loved us in Christ. So Paul chides the Corinthians for not acting so lovingly toward each other. You see there over in chapter 8, verse 11. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Christ so identifies with his church that he is saying, how you have treated each other is how you've treated Christ. So think of someone in this room you don't like. Don't name them. Or at least someone that you're having a hard time dealing with. I think if I'm understanding what Paul is saying here is you like Jesus, honestly, as much as you like that person. Your relationship with a person that you can see is the test of truth about your claims to the relationship you have with a God whom you can't see. So otherwise, it's just this people that we like, the 15 people we really get on with, well, but then that could happen if we were not Christians. It's because of Jesus Christ that we realize that God has loved us, though we have been worse enemies to him than your worst enemy has ever been to you. And look at how God has loved us. So if we really claim to be loved by Christ and to love Christ, you see what that means for our call to love each other. There is no one who is beyond the scope of God's grace in Christ. So there's no one who is to be beyond the scope of our love for them. Friends, that puts the test to our claims to love. Consider the love. That Christ has shown for us by pouring out his blood, by offering up his body for us. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is what Christianity is all about. Not Jesus is a great teacher whose example you should follow, though he is and you should, but Jesus in doing something that you and I could never do. Jesus in dying on the cross as a substitute, being sacrificed in the place of all of us that would have returned from our sins and trust in Him. We can be forgiven by God and reconciled to Him through what Christ has done if you will repent of your sins and trust in Him. If you want to know more about this, talk to the people around you. Talk to perhaps the friend you came with. Talk to the family member that's always bugging you about this at Christmas and Easter. Uh, friends, get a book you can read. Uh, talk to someone down front or on the way out. But try to understand what it means when Paul says here that Christ died for our sins. Look in chapter 15. From the earliest times Christians have known this, when we do something like saying the Nicene Creed in a service at church, what we're doing is really just reflecting what earlier Christians did when they summarized Christian truth, the Christian gospel. Here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it begins, now brothers, I want to remind you, that means Paul had already told them, of the gospel I preached to you. Oh, that's when he had told them of, and which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, oh Paul himself had received something, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. You see the kind of clipped concise, packed cadence of a creed. Paul is rehearsing to them the truths that he himself had learned and that he himself had passed on to them and that they had accepted. And these truths are all about the way God has loved us in Christ. That's at the very core of our community. So we are to be loving because God has so loved us. Christ died for our sins, and the church is is to be a display of God's love in the midst of this messed up, sinful, selfish world. Friends, is that what our churches are? Are we such displays? God has so loved us. We must so love him and each other. So what's the use of the church? Remember the question I put to you at the beginning? The answer is, to manifest to the world the character of God. That's what's going on here. It's not just a consumeristic, do, you have, do they have a children's program here that you like? Uh, my wife does children's program at our church. It's a very important question, believe me. But it's dwarfed by are we experiencing the love of God, understanding the love of God, expressing the love of God? Are we reflecting the character of the Creator and the Savior? to his creation, and to each other. At a conference I was at some years ago, I heard Mark Ross of Columbia, South Carolina, make this same point. He was preaching on Ephesians 4, and he said, we are one of God's chief pieces of evidence. Paul's great concern for the church is that the church manifest and display the glory of God, thus vindicating God's character against all the slander of demonic realms, the slander that God is not worth living for. God has entrusted to His church the glory of His own name, and the circumstances of your life are the God-given occasion of your displaying and manifesting the attributes of God. Friends, you see, if if our church is manifesting a sub-Christian holiness that tolerates sin, or a sub-Christian unity which papers over problems and really unites around other things than Christ and the gospel, Or a sub-Christian love, which is mere sentiment, just a, a family feeling, maybe because we're all so friendly and welcoming here. Then all of these things lie about God. They misrepresent His character. So true holiness will include discipline. True unity will be only around Christ. True love will go deeper than mere sentiment, beyond natural bounds. It will go out to the stranger, for Christ's sake, crossing ethnic borders. This is how God's glory is displayed in the church. This is how the church at Corinth or on Capitol Hill or in Indianapolis will prosper. So how do we display God's glory? By living for him a life together of holiness and marked by unity and love. Friends, this is what the church is about. This is what any church that I'm a part of will be devoted to. How about your church? How about you? Why else would you be involved in a church? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your glorious holiness and purity and goodness. We thank you for the way you have loved us in Christ. No one else has loved us like you. We thank you for the way you've called us in our churches to be loved, to know more of you, and to express that love and holiness and unity to others. Lord, we pray for College Park Church, that it will increasingly be filled to the fullness of the measure of Christ with all of this fruit of your Spirit's work. Lord, we pray that peace and joy and love would mark this congregation for their good and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.